instead of a moment of, of kind of throwing our hands up and surrendering and saying, boy, we need these because otherwise, you know, we're completely alone and stuck in our houses and getting to be bored to death and our children won't learn anything. I think it's actually a time in which to say, to interrogate, you know, how crucial it is that these companies get, get this stuff right and, and how important it is that we, that we, that we monitor this. So I, I actually think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a moment in, in which we have to sort of invert that idea. And, and it's not that it's a tech clash, but it's actually a moment in which we can come together and say, yes, we understand more than ever you know, how crucial this, it is to have this infrastructure, but also you know, the stakes are actually really high. It's not just like you know, logging on and looking at pictures or playing Farmville or doing whatever. This is like, this is millions of children's information and data at stake. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 23rd, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Kate Klonick and I spoke with Charlie Warzel, who's an opinion writer at large at the New York Times. He's written about the internet, disinformation, privacy, and platform governance. And recently, he's been focusing on how these collide with COVID-19 and the uncertainty and anxiety of living through a pandemic. Kate and I had a wide-ranging conversation with him about what the pandemic shows us about the role of big tech companies, and how the spread of a deadly disease in the midst of a polarized information environment may be a worst-case scenario for disinformation. The stakes around disinformation and misinformation have always been high, but right now it's hard to imagine how they could be higher. It's the Lawfare Podcast. Charlie Warzel on the Pandemic Internet. So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so you're a writer at large for the New York Times opinion page, and I love your Twitter bio. You describe yourself as covering the information wars. Um, you've also done a lot of work on privacy and then recently on COVID-19. So just to start off, how do you understand your beat? Oh, boy. Um, it's sort of following my curiosity, I guess. But I mean, the way that I sort of see it is that I've, I'm always and ha- I have been for the last like decade writing about the ways in which you know, the internet sort of changes the way that we communicate and sort of changes, basically complicates society and life and everything that it touches. And so uh, that's kind of just been a cheat code for me to write about whatever is interesting to me. And, you know, that, uh, you know, around probably 2015, presidential politics became very important in terms of sort of the online nature of that. And, and I would say that, that, COVID-19 is is just similar, right? It's just a, a massive story and, you know, the internet and sort of the information ecosystems, you know, play a, a large role there. So I'm able to sort of take a piece of that story because of, because of, you know, my chosen beat, but really, you know, I, it, I'd say it's, it's more like covering my own curiosities, which is, uh, you know, how we're all sort of perceiving this like global catastrophe and how you know the the platforms and and sort of the 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 way that we are synthesizing this information changes you know the the larger story of how this pandemic is going to play out so we had this talk a while ago when we were in texas i think a little bit and we were both on a panel that you kind of that you were moderating excellently um and we were talking about 
um, the impact of all of these private platforms on speech and what's wrong with them and whether they're good or not, do you still think that that's like even a conversation that we would be having in the same way today, given everything that's happened with COVID? The, the way that I've sort of been looking at this is, <laughs> is that what I think COVID does is, is it sort of changes the frame and the stakes of the conversation that we've been having around misinformation for a very long time. Uh, you know, there's something that it almost feels like, like the good old days of political misinformation to some degree, uh, because, you know, political misinformation, the, the way I see it is, I mean, it's obviously a big, gnarly problem, but it's also there, there's something about it that is, you know, very contained, you know, it, it's around, hyperpartisanship it's around you know very explicit modes of of political power and and the way that i've been thinking about the stakes is you know if you take something like a conspiracy theory like pizzagate or something that is patently outrageous but you know basically geared towards political ends it's really bad for society if a thousand people think that Hillary Clinton runs a, you know, a child sex ring out of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. But it, it's sort of unclear what the exact harm is there, uh, you know, what they're going to do out in the world, the sort of the one to one ratio of you believing a conspiracy theory and, and, and the harm to another person. Whereas with COVID and with a lot of medical misinformation, if one or two people are armed with completely bogus facts or uh, you know, sort of armed with a false confidence or sense of security and go out into the public realm and infect people. They're the start of an outbreak cluster with a, you know, with a virus that is deadly that can spread exponentially. So the harm is like incredibly discreet. You, you see it right away and, and, it, and it spreads greatly. So I think the stakes of this are actually just are, are, are much different. And and I think when you combine that with this idea that, you know, unlike politics, which is usually pretty polarized, pretty cut and dry, pretty divided into, into camps, this virus is an emerging threat, one that even the experts don't know everything about. We're kind of grappling with it. The, the common knowledge is changing on the ground very quickly. And, and that's a really scary position to be in because there you know, not only is there a lack of authority from a leadership perspective, but there's a lack of of expert understanding, and and the people who sort of are the best experts are are kind of contributing to that void of authority because that's the best thing to do right now. The best thing we can do is say what we don't know and to urge caution and restraint, and not you know go after miracle cures that aren't proven. So so I think you know the the switching nature of all of this is is scary because it it sort of provides this vacuum of authority in which misinformation you know really replicates and grows. Yeah, so so you wrote this piece recently called What We Pretend to Know About the Coronavirus Could Kill Us about basically everything that you just discussed. And one of the interesting things in there is you you have this phrase that the coronavirus provides the ideal conditions for distrust, bad faith interpretations, political manipulation. I mean, one of the things I thought when I read that is that it seems like 
if you had tried to like computer generate the worst conditions um, <laughs> for a society to face a pandemic like this, I don't know if I could have come up with worse conditions. Like it's an environment, it's hyper politicized. Everyone is afraid. It's a really complicated subject. You know, there's a president who will sort of jump in and say whatever. Like, is this kind of the <laughs> the worst of all worlds right now? It it really does feel like that, and and yeah, you know, I I was listening to a philosopher type uh, on a different podcast talking about uh, you know theories of how the world will end <laughs> in the next century, and and one of the things that that this person talks about is this idea of like correlating risks, right? That um, that you know all the different. It, it's not just like that uh, the planet will warm to a certain degree. And it's not just that there's political tensions. It's that all of these things mix together, right? Like the planet warming a certain number of degrees increases political tensions in certain areas, increases the likelihood of conflict and war. You know, it's sort of this, this idea that, uh, that every force is working on itself. And I think that, you know, COVID broadly as like an umbrella category uh, has all these other correlating risk factors working on it. And it's all the things that, you know, that, that you just described and that, uh, that are sort of, you know, have been brewing for the last decade or two, but really, you know, have come to a head under the Trump presidency, which is, like you said, this reality bending administration, this sort of, uh, you know, this tendency to, to gaslight this hyper politicization of, of pretty much, everything, this media ecosystem, like this online platform-based advertising ecosystem that allows, you know, the democratization of publishing and that, you know, creates sort of an economy for fake information and grifters and shysters, uh, conspiracy theorists who then can, you know, sell products. And then you have, on top of that, a, a, a distrust of the press and sort of an understandable dynamic in which, you know, the press has sort of become this foil for the administration. It sort of plays into the role that the White House wants it to do. And so you, you really do have this this situation where where trust of authority is at crucial lows. So I do see this as sort of the worst case scenario, but 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 it didn't necessarily have to just be COVID. COVID presents its own struggles and challenges. But we're sort of, it just feels like we're kind of always building on this, right? Like we set this really shaky foundation of, you know, a volatile government, a volatile media, a volatile information ecosystem. And now on top of that shaky foundation, we've put this really heavy, you know, scary uh, problem. And it's not, it's not very clear that, you know, it's, that the foundation is going to be able to support it. Yeah, so I really want to build on that. I think that that's a great point because one of the things that I have been thinking about as all of this has been happening is how it's changing our understanding of what online speech is and why we even are, why it's even matters to say something like something is online speech or something isn't speech. If we're all socially distant from each other and we're all communicating through the internet, then maybe every, all speech is online speech, really. All speech and all expression that matters is online. And it's kind of the end of an internet exceptionalism kind of 
framework that we've had for a long time of thinking about this problem. Um, and related to that, I think, is the fact that all of the ways that we talk online are predominantly through um, mechanisms of private platforms, um, private um, entities that are have been, as I've written about, have like become governors or have become these, like have these robust systems in place to hold up this uh, massive infrastructure of the internet. And now, like as our government fails and People keep saying, is this the end of tech lash? Is this the end of tech lash? Is this the end of like the pushback on the tech companies? I was just saying the other day that like in order of importance to me or who I think has gotten this right or wrong, it's like the federal government, at least in the US, the federal government is like at the bottom and like local state and tech platforms are somewhere at the top. Like I don't know in what order. But when we come out of all of this, if what it shows us is that these are essential services, that these are things that are critical to our basic human rights, does that mean that we decide that we regulate them? Or does it mean that we decide that we, the government is the last person that we trust to regulate them? Oh, man, those are all crazily complicated questions. And I think the right ones to be asking right now, I to, to the extent of is all like if we're all interfacing via, you know, these tech platforms and, and, and just through the internet, you know, is the internet sort of the main form of speech? I mean, I, I think that, I think that you, you sort of have to have to say yes right now. I mean, something that I'm thinking a lot about, there's one way to look at this, right. And, and it kind of goes to the idea of the tech lash and, and you say that, these platforms have are so important to us that we realize we realize their importance now and 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 the sort of social good and we need to cut them some slack but i think it goes both ways like something i'm thinking a lot about right now is you know the nature of we have like 1.5 billion children out of school right now or something some some ridiculous statistic like that and so many of them are doing distance learning via a platform like say Zoom. And Zoom, you know, it, it has this massive, you know, increase in, in users and people who are, you know, who are using it basically kind of like under duress. Like they're put in this extraordinary situation and they're forced to to adapt by using whatever's in front of them. And, you know, Zoom is uh, has a lot of privacy issues. It has, uh, you know, it it sells information. It takes information uh, from people, and and there hasn't yet been that conversation about what a platform like that, what their obligation is during a crisis to to change the way in which their like information and data collection works. Right, uh, if you have millions of kids using it who are well underage you have to sort of change the way in which the privacy works or at least suspend that during this wild time. And, and, and I'm sort of tangential, but, but I think like, I think this actually has to be a very clarifying moment. It shows us how important and how deeply embedded and reliant we are on a lot of these platforms. And it's actually, instead of a moment of, of kind of throwing our hands up and surrendering and saying, boy, we need these because otherwise, you know, we're completely alone and stuck in our houses and getting to be bored to death and our children won't learn anything. I think it's actually a time in which to say, to interrogate, you know, how crucial it is that these companies get, get this stuff right. And, and how important it is that we 
that we that we monitor this. So I actually, I actually think it's it's a it's it's a moment in, in which we have to sort of invert that idea. And and it's not that it's a tech clash, but it's actually a moment in which we can come together and say, yes, we understand more than ever, you know, how crucial this it is to have this infrastructure, but also, you know, the stakes are actually really high. It's not just like, you know, logging on and looking at pictures or playing Farmville or doing whatever. This is like this is millions of children's information and data at stake. Everything you said, totally agree with. But then who, if we do realize how incredibly crucial this is, if we do realize that this is just absolutely essential and everything you just said, then who do we trust to decide to take care of it? And I, and I really ask that as a genuine unbated question, which is like, well, on the one hand, we've had a lot of, there's a lot to, to be upset with about the tech companies and they're doing this. On the other hand, we trust other essential functions to the government and they've totally screwed it up. So is the government the answer to tech or is tech the answer to the government? Or like all of these kind of questions right now, I think are just kind of, as you said before, we are just stress testing the systems that we've built, both private and public. And I, I'm just really fascinated if and when we come out of this, like, what do you think the way to think about about regulation should be? I have never been more skeptical of you know of the federal government's abilities that, than I have now, and I think, and I, to some degree, you know, that's my own uh, naivete and being being sheltered from that and and all all of the the privileges afforded to me in general and. But, you know, as somebody who was looking at, you know, say the 2020 election through the lens of, you know, how are some of these Democratic candidates going to bring some of the power of the federal government to bear on the tech industry's power and just and just sort of, you know, antitrust and monopoly power in general, I feel like I've done kind of a 180 on that as a result. Like, like you said, I mean, I to some extent, I think what we're looking at is is a little bit of just sort of. I, I think it's all heightened by the incompetency of the Trump administration and the inability to want to acknowledge reality until it's too late. I don't necessarily think that that would happen under every uh, government, but I but I do think I do think we the slowness to act on behalf of Congress in terms of of a bailout and and how it has you know how it seems largely not enough. Like I, I do think we're seeing the limits there. So. I don't know. I mean, a, a sort of a, a, a corollary to, to all of this is how I felt about Apple and Google and these tech companies and contact tracing. You know, I, I spent the, the last part of uh, 2019 working for months on a uh, location tracking project and sort of uh, arguing uh, through you know deep reporting that that this is a, a you know a scourge on society and sort of like an original sin of our sort of tech infrastructure that has just you know er- eroded the rights of many citizens uh, as it relates to location tracking on a phone and then this pandemic sort of rears its head and there is this incompetence on behalf of the federal government to do anything about it and these companies are kind of coming to the rescue with a, lo- a location tracking based solution. And it sounds really good to me. Uh, you know, it's, it certainly doesn't seem perfect by any stretch, but, but it, there's something soothing about the fact that somebody somewhere is stepping up and that the, that the people that are stepping up have scale and infrastructure and funds and money 
and you know sort of the the drive to to get this done so so i don't know i would say i'm more confused than ever before in terms of of governance and and who should do what and i i, I think i think what what's really scary about that is that these these entities seem of perhaps equal size and importance and one is a, a series of you know private companies and the other is the government so that's that's a scary thing to think about yeah i've been fascinated by the as you say the kind of the incompetence of the federal government and the appearance of competence on the part of these companies i mean even zoom right that zoom i feel like the the story on zoom has just zigzagged so abruptly back and forth because at first it was Zoom, this thing is amazing. It's going to keep us all connected during this terrible time. And then it was Zoom, it's taking all your data. And also, you know, there are people coming and jumping in and Zoom bombing and, you know, Nazis disrupting little kids' classes and that kind of thing. And then, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to say that they're, they've been doing perfectly by any means, but they did seem to kind of have a, road to Damascus moment of realizing, oh, God, we have to take this really seriously, right? They got new people on board. They're sort of rolling out new measures. It strikes me as interesting in that this sort of idea of, you know, techno-utopian competence, which is something that's been so undermined recently, has now really returned. And it is, in a way, something that the president seems to be trying to draw on, right, in his you know, reopening the country council or whatever it is that he's been putting together and yet like isn't quite capable of grasping it. So I I don't know that this is a long way of asking whether I, I wonder whether we really are going to come out of this with sort of a much rosier view of the Internet that we had when we went in. It's really funny listening to you describe the Zoom over the last four weeks, five weeks is like the story of Silicon Valley condensed into four or five weeks. <laughs> like exactly, it's, it's really all of it uh, at once. And I think that that's a little bit of what, of what a crisis like this does. Like I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, COVID and, and this pandemic is sort of feels like it's a stand in for, you know, the, the threat of so, something like climate change, which, you know, happens on sort of a geological timeline, but this is happening on sort of a, uh, you know, a, vir- a virology timeline, which is much, much uh, shorter. But, it's, you know, to, to that point of like where we're going to come out on this, I, I don't know. Like I, I, and I think anyone who, who says that they know is probably, you know, wrong because, because, uh, you know, on one side, if the tech companies c- come in and provide tools like this contact tracing thing and it rolls out and it, you know, it, it doesn't need full adoption, but it does provide this great serv- public health service. You know, it, it allows for alongside, you know, private companies ramping up testing. It, it gives us an ability to play the whack-a-mole game for 18 months until we get a vaccine. You know, if they can do that, if they can provide this infrastructure, if we can lean on them and they can give sort of a, a reasonably decent experience, if they can upgrade, you know, internet and sort of ease the digital divide in this in this moment and bring more, you know, people online uh, for, you know, learning and things like that, I, I think it will engender a lot of goodwill. But at the same time, you know, as the like the second order or third order ec- economic effects happen, if we slide into, you know, a sustained massive recession slash depression, 
and jobs, you know, start to go, go away. And you even see, you know, tech startups start to go under and, and there's this larger consolidation. And then you have, you know, companies like Amazon, you know, sort of continue and, and Google and Apple, like to gain market dominance in what they do. I, I see that there's, there's also this possibility of coming out on the other side and there's like seven companies left in America and, you know, 45 million people who now have to work three gig jobs uh, for like 14 different contractors who are assigned to these other big tech platforms. And and then you have, you know, sort of the the resentment of, you know, 2018, 2019, that sort of tech lash idea, which is sort of, you know, class and economics based as well as as cultural and that that comes to bear and i and i think that that would you know there would be just absolute resentment in all of that because i i think you know what what's hard to know is what this is going to do to the prospects of 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 so many american workers in the long run and i think that these companies you know have their fingers on the scales and i think if it does a lot to concentrate wealth and concentrate power then you know perhaps all that goodwill that they gain on the front end will be, you know, completely undermined on the back end by just a, a large, underemployed, discontented group of people. Yeah. So I want to go back. You're talking about Amazon, and you talked just a second ago about the the surveillance pieces and the location based tracking that people are talking about coming out of this moment that we're having. The trade-off kind of um, from an academic perspective has always been basically between safety and privacy, right? To make it really, really basic. Um, but the the things that you're talking about and that you've talked about in the past are really more consumer privacy-based. But as we're kind of talking about today and we have less trust for federal government and we have this melding of who we're, we are relying on turning into um, these private companies and not our own governments... I'm really curious for you to talk about kind of just for an example, the Ring um, video doorbell piece that you did for the Times. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us um, about that and researching that, how kind of the backstory of how that piece came together. So part part of the issue with, with something like Ring being really contentious right now or, or you know, previously before all, all this happened is, is partly due to, you know, it being bought by Amazon. And and sort of I, and I think it is sort of this like story of consolidation that that is difficult and and so like a, a good example of, of how I think you know possibly this like COVID crisis will it will accelerate that type of thing is we were talking about Zoom a minute ago and you know Zoom has done largely very well with like sort of the bandwidth issues and the massive scaling up it has to do uh, to support all these people but at the same time it has strained at times and I've seen, you know, chatter from, you know, parts of technology, Twitter and other places say, well, you know, Facebook should just buy zoom, you know, and then they will sort of have this large, amazing part of the market sort of, you know, counteract Google, which has its own, you know, meetings and hangouts platform and things like that. And it's like, people aren't really even realizing that that's just a story then of, of, you know, of further tech consolidation and all the privacy concerns that, uh, that exist there. And, and, you know, like you could see, you could see that becoming a necessity, right? Like that this, this, you know, wild 
event forces all these users there and then forces them to sort of seek the, the, the solace of a larger company that can sort of handle the demand. And then they become sort of part of like, you know, the, uh, they become another tentacle on the giant vampire squid of, of Facebook. And then you get the backlash there. I think the economic imperatives here are going to are going to lead to a lot of this consolidation, and that's that's scary. I think uh, potentially, and that's sort of a little bit of like what I think why people are are obviously so concerned by the proliferation of these ring doorbell cameras because it's not just a plucky startup. It's not just you know it, it's like at the end of at the end of that whole chain is the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, and, and this, you know, this, this company, which already owns, you know, a significant portion of like the actual, like infrastructure of the internet through Amazon web services. So, you know, you have, you have that, that issue. And I, and I think that like, we're going to see a lot of these, these big privacy issues as they play out. I mean, I think, I think early on, right. In, in this moment, it is very easy as we're all really terrified about the future, we're really terrified of of this, you know, of this virus and and our immediate health. Like we we do sort of have, you know, we make that retreat into, you know, like you said, sacrificing the privacy for this immediate feeling of safety, and that feels very natural during these moments. But eventually, uh, and and there's a certain percentage of the population that's already there, right? Uh, that's fed up with all this and just wants to be back to normal, but eventually everyone's going to kind of get there. Like eventually the, the simmering, the, the crisis level is going to come down a little bit for everyone. And, and, and either we're going to enter this new normal or we're going to slowly get back parts of society. And then that trade-off's maybe not going to feel so great. And I think that's sort of like the, that's also part of the story of the last decade of the internet, right? Like you're, you know, when, when things either feel low stakes, you're willing to accept them, or when things are really high stakes, you're willing to accept them. And then when when all that levels off, when you kind of hit sort of a, a plateau of normalcy, then it's like, what choice did I just make? Was that the right choice? Was I sort of duped? And I think there will be people who feel, you know, maybe uh, these companies took too much uh, they didn't let the crisis go to waste, and then that's going to be, you know, that's going to be an issue and a real focus. Um, I think there are so many thorny issues when you just think of not to sort of evade your question completely, but when you think of like this Apple and Google contact tracing thing for COVID, you know, one of one of the things that they're they're saying is, well, we're going to, you know, delete all this data or or turn the program off when the crisis is over. And like, you know, from, from my perspective, it's like, well, who's defining when it's over? What does over mean? Uh, <laughs> you know, like this is not something where, you know, we, we flip a switch and the virus isn't, isn't there anymore. Uh, even when we have something like a vaccine, it's going to take time for everyone to get it. And so this is going to play out sort of in phases. And it's, it, you know, it's already curious to me, how are we going to let these private companies define those phases for us. One of the things that that you've been writing about is sort of not only the role of platforms here, but also the role of the press, right? Like the extent to which the press has created conditions or allowed conditions to continue in how people write and talk about issues like the coronavirus that sort of allow mis and disinformation to take root and for mistrust of authority to take root. So like, 
what should the press be doing better? <laughs> That's a big question, but I am curious to hear your thoughts on it. I, I've been thinking so much about this this week and I guess last week while watching some of these briefings and, and talking to different people about them. These the, the briefings being the president's White House coronavirus task force briefings, um, which are like an absolute disaster, which means that they're appointment television. Um, and and I think I think that it's there's actually this like really pure case study from which to see you know, how the press is, is really outmatched by what, what, what Donald Trump is doing. I, I was talking uh, with another sort of mis- and disinformation scholar, Peter Pomerantsev, who um, writes a lot about Russian disinformation, but also uh, studies it globally, has this great book called This Is, uh, this is Not Propaganda. And, you know, <laughs> I was sort of, you know, trying to explain... Uh, what I see as, 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 you know, this difficulty where Donald Trump sort of, you know, creates situations and then sort of baits the press into playing the role he wants them to play. And, and, and he had this like very profound takeaway from it, which was that, you know, this is actually the way that, that power works now. And journalism, you know, the way that power works is they create their own narratives in order to drum up opposition. And, they don't really care so much about controlling the narrative themselves, uh, which is, you know, different from sort of like authoritarians of the sort of the early 20th century, sort of the traditional authoritarian model. And basically this idea of like, you know, journalists have a really hard time wrapping their heads around that. The the sort of traditional idea of of the press and journalism is to punch up and to speak truth to power. But if power wants you to punch them because that's how they derive their power, then then the model doesn't fundamentally work very well. So this is something that I'm trying to artfully write because clearly I'm, uh, I and the, and the place where I work are, are, are a part of this story, as is all the media. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to unwind that. But, but, but the way that, that then, it, so it, basically what it means is like the very traditional and, and admirable way in which the press is supposed to work sort of breaks down under the conditions, under the game that the president is asking everyone to play. So then it's, the issue becomes like, how, how do we think about this? And it feels increasingly like what needs to happen is, is that, you know, the media needs to do this, this thing that it's really uncomfortable with, which is to start thinking about audience. And so I've been thinking about, and not just about audience, but about like the, the effects that what the press does has on all its different audiences. So like the media, any newsroom is aware of who reads or watches and like they know who their sort of target group is. And that's sort of usually to some degree, the way that a newsroom will, will focus resources and time and, and, and make editorial decisions to some degree based off of that. Not always, but to some degree. I think, you know, there needs to be sort of this reorienting, at least with this particular president and administration, to think a little bit about, you know, the downstream consequences of these actions. Like what happens when the press is overly, you know, focused on being this, you know, performing this adversarial role, not just necessarily to, you know, get the facts out, but because it serves, you know, their audience. And and like a, an example for this, that that's with these briefings that I've been kind of obsessing over is, you know, I think it was like it was Monday of, of this week. CNN ran some like really pugnacious confrontational uh, lower third chirons during the 
you know, the press conference saying like Trump is trying to, you know, rewrite history and, you know, spouting propaganda as he melts down. It was like something, you know, to that effect, very kind of dramatic and provoking towards him and the administration, but also truth. And I was just kind of thinking like, who is that for? Like if you, if you kind of start looking instead from a lens of speaking truth to power to thinking about audiences, so who is CNN creating that Chiron for? Is it for a Trump voter to see, you know, when they're kind of flipping channels and to sort of reach out to that person and to say, like, kind of shake them by the collar and say, like, do you see what's going on? This is crazy. Or is it for sort of a, you know, a not very politically engaged, low information style voter, or maybe not totally decided, who's not really sure how the president's handling this to say, you know, grab them by the lapels again and say, do you see this, this craziness? Or is it the third category in which is fan service, political fan service for people who tune in because they really disagree with the president. They think he's, you know, a danger to public health and it's cathartic for them to see somebody, you know, say, look at this liar lying. And if it's the third, then what's the point? Because you're not really speaking truth to power, then you're, you know, you're offering this fan service. If it's, you know, if it's the others, then, you know, if you're trying to reach a Trump voter, then why are you reaching, you know, why are you coming out and sort of using this aggressive and provoking language? Is that the best way to do it? And, and I'm not sure that I necessarily know the exact answer in that scenario, but it, it sort of leads me to, to have this new way of looking at it and saying, like, it, it doesn't seem to work whatever, whatever is being done now. And so, you know, what we're left with is this sort of oppositional quality from the media in which we become the thing that he wants us to become. And then it's used, you know, as fuel. And the only thing it does is kind of, you know, heighten and play into the political polarization that exists. And, you know, no one's really better off. No one's actually really all that much more informed than they were. Uh, if you believe Donald Trump is, you know, uh, a charlatan who downplayed this and, uh, you know, is responsible for a lot of the, you know, the destruction that we're seeing right now play out both, you know, in people's health and in the economy, you're, you didn't really get anything new from that. And, if you are someone who thinks that the press is, you know, woefully biased and, you know, is really trying to use this crisis as a way to destroy his odds of reelection, that narrative is going to be reinforced to you. So this is my long-winded way of saying, like, I think something has to change. And I'm, I think that that starts with, like, a real understanding of what these second and third order effects are from the type of coverage. And, and the way that I would think of it as it relates to these press briefings is, you know, maybe it's not necessarily the debate of like, do we show them live or do we not? Maybe it's just how much airtime do we give them and how much follow-up analysis do we give them and how many column inches and pixels, you know, are we devoting to talking about how outrageous this is? I think you have to balance that, of course. You don't want to like let you know, the administration win and go uncontested. But I think sort of creating this oppositional force as the primary method or the primary goal, rather, of political journalism right now is playing into something else. And, you know, what are we ignoring by focusing all on that? Well, you know, we're to some degree ignoring 
how this is playing out across the country. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I, I share your worry that it's the third possibility, right? That it's kind of a strange loop of feedback, right? Where where you end up in this, you know, Trump is adversarial to the press because that gets him more press and they're adversarial back because you can sort of perform that adversarialness and it just ends up being fodder for people on either side in how they consume information and get sort of locked into the sort of, I'm mixing metaphors here, but an airless room, right? None of the facts of what's going on are really penetrating, even if that is what the confrontation is layered on top of. And I think, I mean, this seems to me to be a similar dynamic as you noted about, you know, we're sort of Zoom is running everything that happened to Silicon Valley in the past 10 years on speed run that right now we're seeing everything that the press has struggled with in terms of how to deal with a president who interacts with the media this way and who lies in this way just cranked up to 11 and genuinely on matters of life and death. I mean, and the the thing that that makes me wonder about and that I've been I've been puzzling over is how far does this go? Right. I think Peter Pomerantsev in your your piece had this great metaphor about diving into a pool and expecting you're going to hit bottom and then you just keep on going. Like I would have said, if you have a massive pandemic with an enormous amount of people dying, that at a certain point, reality has to kick in and this sort of red team, blue team dynamic of the information wars necessarily collapses if only because people are dying but it seems increasingly like it just keeps going all the way to the bottom like are are we locked in a death loop essentially yeah it's it's really uh it's really scary because i feel pretty jaded by all of this and even i was surprised i don't know if we want to if we want to be you know dating things uh in this but i was I guess it was Wednesday's gridlock protests in Lansing, Michigan, uh, where uh, sort of seems like it was a, a pro-Trump crowd, but a, uh, a very sort of don't tread on me uh, group of people, you know, protesting the stay at home order and social distancing and, you know, blocking traffic near some of the government buildings and watching that the fact that they were, they were blocking traffic to a degree where you know, ambulances carrying presumably COVID patients to the hospital, you know, weren't able to get through. And and this is sort of, you know, a framed as a, as a liberty protest that is, you know, like it, it's sort of so unconscionable to me that it's, that it, I had that moment of, you know, thinking, well, like, like surely we, we should be scraping the bottom of the pool uh, and, and we haven't. But I mean, I don't know. I, I, I feel like though the only way to break it is that somebody has to like, maybe it can't be broken. Right. And maybe I'm just being extremely naive here. And and it's why I'm actually having a lot of trouble writing around this topic because I, I, I don't want to come down, you know, too hard on the, on one side here. Cause I, I do understand why the press does what it does. And, and I think that to some degree, you know, in a lot of cases it can provide a great service uh, there. I do think though, like, you know, if you are in like, if you're talking about it as like, you're in like a, a vicious circle or, you know, a death, death spiral or whatever, whatever you want to call it, like it, it does sort of require that somebody changes something. 
And, you know, I, I'm not trying to do the, you know, they go low, we go high thing here. But I do think there's like a way in which it's like, how do you then maybe choose how you're trying to reach people or how you're trying to talk to people or how you conceive of audiences? You know, this, this thing that I keep thinking of is, you know, when this whole fight between like, you know, the pro-Trump people and, you know, the, the, the liberal media or whatever, you know, whatever sort of way in which this all gets divvied up is not necessarily how all of America works. Like it's obviously very polarized, but like audiences aren't monolithic. Like I think you, you see that whenever, uh, I think it's one of the great things about the caucus system that you always see is you just see all these people with these very weird sort of political peccadilloes who, you know, jump from Bernie to Amy Klobuchar to Andrew Yang, (laughs) just in this weird way that sort of doesn't really make sense, but that's, you know, people don't make sense. And, and I think that, you know, the way that both Donald Trump addresses his side and the way that the press addresses their side is as these sort of monolithic groups. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's, there's probably room for a lot of, a lot more nuance and there's room for a lot more thinking about about the effects of this but at the same time it does it does feel like we've kind of locked ourselves into this game and nobody wants to blink because you know in order to blink to to some degree you have to change up your whole identity you know these issues of politics have just have just overlaid onto you know the very essence of who we are as people and that is what makes things so scary and that's why you have people unwilling to compromise during moments of like extreme life and death uh, because you know listening to these experts would mean taking into account the the possibility that you've been wrong all along and that's very hard for people um and it's the same thing for you know for for the press uh you know changing this up would would have to have certain people in the media face up to the idea that maybe some of what they've done is actually harmful to you know the way that the the, sort of the the soul of the country and that is equally hard and 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 difficult to do so i i don't you know this is all my way of saying i i'm not sure but it feels like if you if you want a chance for something to change that something has somebody has to give an inch and i think if anyone's in a position to do that it's probably the press yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I love the the Pomerantsev metaphor is because you know when when you hit the bottom of the pool after a dive, what happens is that you get your teeth knocked out, right? Like it is <sighs> that that change will necessarily be painful, precisely because of how extreme it's going to have to be. I think that's I think that's totally true. I this is a scary time, and I actually think to some degree. This is maybe going a little bit afield, but um, I think there were a lot of feelings with this 2020 election that, you know, with, with certain groups of people, if we could just get a Democrat elected or, or anyone besides Donald Trump, you know, a lot of these problems will just go away. And I think what this pandemic shows and, and you know, what we're kind of setting ourselves up for here is that that's not the case. And I think that it's been kind of clarifying to that to that degree that, you know, these these issues are are bigger than one person. That this is you know something that's been building and building, and there is there is some clarity to that understanding of we don't just have one problem here. We have you know a a really complex set of intertwined problems, 
that we're going to be dealing with for a while. And that, and I think that's partially why, like you said, any actual change is going to be violent and painful and not violent in like blood in the streets way, but like violent in the like, you know, hitting the bottom of the pool is violent. It's, it's, it's going to sort of shake the foundations of, of a lot of, I think, how we perceive ourselves as, you know, either people or members of the press or whatever. It's going to be kind of an identity level change. All right. Well, on that very profound note, let's leave it there. Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.